Hey, hey. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, there we are. How are you guys doing this morning? Man, it's great to be with you today. Sorry, I just need a second here to get all set up, huh? So, we are starting this morning the first of a three-week series called Continuing the Core. And basically what we're going to be doing is taking a look at EPMC's core values in the midst of transition. Can anybody name all three of our core values? We have worship, we have mission, and we have community. As I was digging in and trying to look for just, you know, in, in our church context, what these things meant to us, I, uh, I checked the website, I checked different pamphlets, anywhere that I could find these three core values, and um, it was interesting. What I found is, uh, is worship, no matter where we looked, was always mentioned first. Um, so I, I thought it was fitting today that we lead in with worship. And as I was going over my message, digging into the Word, what I found out is worship, not only are these, they're, they're side by side, but worship can also be viewed as the umbrella that the other two, mission and community, kind of fall, uh, uh, fall underneath. So Derek, don't at me. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so our worship needs to be uh, the first and the center of all that we do. Now, you say, hold on, Josh, press pause for a second. Now, you're the worship leader, and you're telling us that worship is like the most important, the first and foremost thing. It seems like you're a little biased. Maybe that's kind of self-serving a little bit. Well, stick with me today. That's not the case, because we're not looking at worship as just worship in song or worship uh, as our meetings here together. We're, we're, we're looking at worship in a much uh, broader sense today. So, as many of you know, oh yeah, here's, here's our title, and or taking worship out of the box. As many of you know, I've been on a journey for the past months. Um, I, it's been a long time. I don't know how many exactly, but um, the journey of become, soon to become a licensed pastor and then later to be ordained as a pastor in LMC, which I'm, I'm very excited about as a worship pastor. And so I've been reading this book called The Worship Pastor uh, by Zach Hicks. And I think when we talk about worship, Zach Hicks has one of the best definitions that I've found. Um, and he breaks it down into three layers. So let's start, let's use my little graph here. Let's start from the outside and we will work our way in. So layer number one is the first and broadest layer uh, of worship that's conceived as an activity in which all human beings whether religious or not, are engaged. This is defined as every single human being's responsive, whole life giving to something or someone. So the idea that everybody worships, whether you're a Christian or not, and I know that almost sounds bad to say because we've kind of trained our minds to think worship is Christian, but this is a much broader definition. The second layer is the layer which makes it um, uniquely Christian, which is a holistic worship, more specifically as responsive, whole life giving to God through Christ by the Spirit. And that's, like I said, that is uniquely Christian worship, the way that we should be living our lives. 
And then our third layer, which is the narrowest layer, the third layer exists as an even narrower sphere of weekly gathered worship where God's people join together to enact certain rituals and receive unique gifts of God's presence and grace. So before I broke that down for you, you know, when, when we talk about worship, what, what do you, when you hear the word worship, what do you think of? Do you just apply it to our church context, or do you think in a more broader sphere? See, I think for a, for a long time we got really comfortable with this word, and we've kind of just keep it in this little box. See, it wouldn't be uncommon for a person to be a worshiper of things like money, fame, reputation, relationships, sports, school, philosophy, the list can go, go on and on, right? Um, it's the things that we, we give our lives to. So just for example, probably money is the thing that's the most concrete, that makes the most sense, and is just the easiest example. So let's go there first. So money makes me feel good. It makes my life easy. I'm able to buy whatever I want, so therefore I will commit my life to making as much money as I possibly can. Right? Outside of God, that's a way that somebody could live their life. That's a way that somebody could worship. So it's not a stretch to say that this is something that our atheist, our agnostic um, friends, co-workers, whatever, can do. Worship is the way that we live our lives. So the big question that we will try to unpack today is who or what are we worshiping? We need to take worship out of our little box and think of it in those terms. And we can do that very simply, right? We can tell what we're worshiping by our fruits. We can tell what we're worshiping by our actions. I think we've gotten really good at just coming to church and giving people all the, the Sunday school answers, right? We come in here and we say, oh yeah, we're doing, we're doing great, we're doing fine. But how are you doing at home with your family? How are you doing when no one's wa watching you? What are you worshiping, right? It's easy as somebody who is up here most Sundays, it's easy to worship up here from the platform when all eyes are on you. But when eyes are not on you, what does that look like? So I want to take a look at a, our scripture today, and this is the passage of the rich young ruler. We're going to see what he valued, what he worshipped, um, and it's from Mark 10, 17 to 27. There's uh, three different accounts of this story in the Bible, um, but we're looking at the one from Mark today. Follow along with me as I read. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things... I have kept since my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around 
and said to his disciples how difficult, it is, uh, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but, with God, but, uh, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So just a couple of things I've noticed as, as I've read through this scripture verse. Right? Here was a man who ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. Right? Can you imagine that? Somebody just almost running up and sliding on their knees. It wasn't his passion and it wasn't his desire that kept him from what Jesus was trying to lead him into. Right? And he, he said there, Good teacher, what can I do? Good teacher, what can I do? So, if he, if he was calling Jesus God, he got it right. But if he was calling man good then he missed it. From that phrase, what can I do? What can I do to, to save myself? Nothing. It's not through anything that I can do. It's simply through the work of Jesus Christ. Also, it was kind of funny that Jesus quizzed him as he was going over the different ones of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments. Here's something interesting that I noticed, right? The ones that he listed do not steal, do not murder, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, all those, right? Those are the last six commandments. Those are all the commandments that deal only with the rich young ruler's relationship to man. The first four commandments deal with his relationship towards God. And Jesus didn't ask him those, right? Because he could say, well, I'm doing, the ones that you ask me, God, I'm doing great. In the eyes of man, I'm doing awesome, he was an established ruler in the synagogue who was probably esteemed and respected by people. Like I said, on the outside, he was doing great. But what was going on with his heart? What was going on in the inside? See, Jesus aims to tackle idols of our heart, what's on the inside. The rich young ruler had passion and desire, but was unable to go all in. Let me tell you a story about going all in. When I, was, when I was younger, like in, I don't know, middle school or high school, one of the things my friends did, just hanging out, was we liked to play some cards. We would occasionally play stuff like uh, poker, Texas Hold'em, and not for any real money or anything. We were just playing. We were hanging out. And one thing during uh, that time together that would drive me absolutely nuts was one of my friends who would be playing with us and poker, when you're playing cards, it can kind of be a, a longer game if you're, if you're playing it with strategy, if you're doing it right. This guy would play until he began to lose interest. And then when he was done, when he would check out, he would just say, okay, I'm all in. That's good. I'm, I'm done, right? I'm, ch I'm checking out. And that would drive me crazy because that's not the way you play. He just lost interest and then he was done. So what that reminded me of was how easy it is to go all in when there is nothing to lose. Or you could say it this way, the more you have to lose, 
the harder it is to go all in. Such the case for the rich young ruler, right? The fear of losing all is what keeps us from going all in. The risk is high, but the reward is great. It requires faith. This isn't an immediate transaction, right? As a rich young ruler, this guy would have gotten business practices. He would have gotten, okay, if I give this, I should get something in return, an immediate transaction. But that's not how faith works. That's not how God operates. He says, trust in me, follow me, and so your treasure will be in heaven, right? It's not, it's not a blessing game. It's not, oh, as soon as you're saved, you will, you're promised riches and fame and fortune, all that stuff. No. That's not the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler was not able to go all in on Jesus' loving invitation. See, he was ready for Jesus to be his savior. He wanted that, but he wasn't ready for Jesus to be Lord of his life. And that's what brings me back to that and or statement. Josh, what's that, that and or? What's that all about? Well, we're looking at Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So, can it be an and or? Can you have Jesus as just your Savior and not follow him as Lord? Can it just be one or must it be both? I have a quote here uh, from John Bevere, an author that I really enjoy. He says, because the Western church has emphasized the, wor the work that Jesus did for us as Savior rather than his position as Lord, a lack of submission to his position of authority creates a significant fault in our foundation. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as your Savior, oh wait, no, it doesn't say that, it says, Lord, continue uh, to live your lives in him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in, in the faith you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So just showing that, making that our foundation, that Jesus is our Lord, the Lord of our life, and we live accordingly. See, the interesting thing about this dynamic between Savior and Lord, if Jesus was just the Savior, the rich young ruler would have been okay, right? Because if Jesus is just the Savior, then if we take what he says, and we understand that it's good, we will listen and follow. But, as Savior, if we don't think what he says is good, if it doesn't fit our context, if it makes us uncomfortable, if it leads us in a direction that we don't want to go, we don't have to follow. Because he's not Lord of your life, right? You're still Lord of the, your life. You are still holding that position. You haven't submitted that to him. Savior is a title that conveys benefit, where Lord is a title that declares position in someone's life. So here's, a, here's an example of that. So when Liz and I got married, one of the things that I really enjoyed was Liz cooking. I thought that, I thought that was awesome because when I, when I was single, that didn't happen very much. It was, it was a lot of sandwiches and frozen pizza and all that good stuff, right? I just didn't cook too much. So having someone cook for me was awesome. That was a big benefit, right? But when, I, when Liz and I go somewhere and I introduce her to somebody, I don't say, hey, this is Liz, this is my cook, right? Or I would be in, I would be in big trouble. I'd be in the doghouse for sure, right? That would, that would not go over too well. The title only conveys benefit. Rather, 
Liz is my wife. That's the position that she holds in my life. So even when I was single, when Liz would cook for me, you know, that didn't say, just her cooking for me didn't say that Liz belonged to me or I belonged to her. It, it, all it was was just a benefit. It wasn't until we made a covenant and, and I would forsake all others and give my heart solely to her as her husband that solidified our marriage relationship, right? It was the position that she held in my life. It wasn't the benefits that Liz brought me. It's interesting, another important part that uh, Bevere names in, in his book, uh, Good or God, is that in the Bible, the word Savior only appears 36 times. The word Lord in the Bible appears over 7,800 times. And I just think that's, that's interesting. I think, I think that shows a lot. In order to receive the work of salvation, we must submit to his lordship, ownership, and reign. We give our lives completely because we are confident in his perfect leadership, character, and love. Another passage from Mark 8 says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So even just looking at that verse, right? Whoever desires to save his life, to be able to receive the, the salvation work of the Lord, there is something to be lost there. You are no longer living for yourself. You are living for Christ Jesus, something much greater than yourself. There is sacrifice to be made. So we know it's not a matter of just saying a prayer and saying, God, be my Savior, and being able to go and just say, okay, that's it. I did it. I'm good. I'm going to continue to live however I want to, right? doesn't work that way. Where is the fruit in your life? So one of the buzzwords that, that people like to use today is balance. People will say, how's the balance in your life? How's your work balance? You know, how's your family balance? How's your church life balance? God doesn't want a segregated balance of your life. He wants it all mixed together. He wants the good. He wants the bad. He wants the, he wants the ugly. Whatever you got, he's going to take it. You know, people ask you, well, how, Josh, how's your spiritual life going? How about just how's life going, right? Like we have to separate those two things with, with these man-made parameters between what's sacred and what's secular. It's kind of like the kid who sits at the dinner table, right? And uh, doesn't want any of his food to touch. Takes the peas and he needs to be over here and takes the corn and the mashed potatoes, whatever else. Can't, can't mix it together. But as the adults, we say, well what's it matter, right? It's all, it's all going to the same place. It's all the same thing. It's getting mixed together, right? Come on. But what we need to do is we need to quit putting these man-made parameters around our lives, and we need to give all of ourselves to God. He came, he died for all of you, not just your Sunday mornings, right? Not just youth group, not just your devotional time at home, 
How are we surrendering to his lordship? What does our worship look like? So going back to that original definition, right, it's a responsive, whole life giving to something or someone. So Jesus, you loved me so much that you died on the cross for me. So my response to that is now I will live my entire life, not just the areas that I want to give, not just what I'm comfortable with, I will give everything over to you and completely commit and surrender my life to your leading, to your guidance. As the worship team comes back up today, I want to read one more Bible verse as we tie it all together here. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So just three things that we can look at to remember as we head out today. Let's throw off everything. Anything that has not been committed to God, committed to the Lord as, as Lord of our lives, we need to get rid of that and we need to start following him. Or we could say, run with perseverance towards him, right? Because it's not, it's not just a quick thing, it's a lifelong journey. Always fixing our eyes on Jesus because he is, he is the center of it all. Jesus is the beginning and the end. So while it seems right now we may be in the land between, in this time of transition, let's not get distracted. But let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Can we today surrender ourselves to his lordship in our lives?